and welcome to Regeneratively Speaking, a podcast brought to you by the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm Katherine Drinkett. And I'm Joshua Huntsberger. In each episode, we bring you interviews with guest researchers and our institute's faculty covering the latest cutting-edge research on regenerative medicine. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Sefton. Dr. Sefton is a university professor at the University of Toronto in the Department of Chemical Engineering and Applied Chemistry. And his research is focused on cell transplantation, biomaterials, and tissue engineering. Hi, Dr. Sefton. Thank you for being here. So on your research homepage, you talk about your story. Your opening line is, it's not science fiction to say that one day patients will have access to lab-grown human organs. Could you provide a brief overview of what your lab is currently doing to succeed in realizing this ultimate goal? So uh, my lab is focused primarily on vascularization, angiogenesis. We believe that in order to grow uh, organs, one needs to generate a vasculature to provide the cells in that organ with uh, nutrients, take away waste, provide oxygen. And so before one can start thinking about growing larger organs, one needs to have a strategy to uh, vascularize that tissue. So we're focused on that vascularization step. Great. Okay. Talk to us a little bit about how you first got into the field of regenerative medicine. In the late 1970s, I was approached by a student who had worked in the summer at Connaught Labs in the north of Toronto and said his supervisor in the summer was building these hybrid organs with taking pancreatic islets and putting them in a tube to treat diabetes. And they had a problem of uh, blood would clot in the tubing. And so because the student, when he came back to university, saw that I was working on blood compatibility, he thought I could be helpful to this fellow at this company, Connaught Labs. And so that began a collaboration early among the first people trying to put cells and materials and tissues together. From that, he realized that there were some other people who were trying to encapsulate islets, and he asked me whether I could encapsulate islets, and I said, sure, it sounds easy, (laughs) and and about 25 years later I gave up, uh, realizing it wasn't so easy. But that was that encapsulation of islands work that we had done. Turns out to, I think, have been about the first time people put cells and polymers together to try to make anything close to a tissue, what would now be called a tissue construct. So a follow-up question, why do you feel that regenerative medicine is such an important area of investigation? So there are three reasons. Uh, I'll start with her almost the least important. One is that medical devices is an important part of the healthcare system, and if we can make better medical devices uh, for heart or limb disease, that's a good thing. Secondly, there are many people who don't get a transplant because there aren't available tissues, and so that's another medical need. And then maybe the most important reason for people who are young is to recognize that there are fewer young people for every old person, and so it's incumbent on young people to enable old people like me to become active, healthy, 
and productive for as long as I can because otherwise there's going to be a health care burden that's going to be unpayable and that presumably is the health care problem that is undergoing with the arguments that you have in your government. Interesting. So in your talk today, you discuss agents to increase vascularization as well as novel biomaterials that have different properties. Could you discuss some of the current challenges that the field is facing and how identifying new agents and biomaterials could advance the field of regenerative medicine in such applications as, let's say, wound healing, for instance? I mean, I think that there's one general challenge and it has different manifestations in different areas. And that's the challenge is when we have a construct and we put it in vivo, whether it's in an animal or a patient, we really have no control of what happens afterwards. And so these constructs remodel. Uh, there is a, often a negative inflammatory response that results. And as a result, the construct that results isn't as useful or as functional as what we started with when we grew in the laboratory. Bridging that gap between what we make in the lab and what happens in vivo is the central challenge. I talked about it in the talk as a remodeling challenge, trying to understand remodeling and, the ch and controlling that. And the concern with controlling it, or the issue with controlling it is, we don't know what's the rate limiting step, what's important in that process. We know many things are happening, but we don't know which is the point that we can intervene to in order to direct the outcome to having a more beneficial outcome. So that's our central challenge, and everything else is sort of background. So talk to us about your research. How will it be applied in a clinical setting? And what is the most, what seems to be the most promising area? Well, we're not focused on clinical applications. One of the, uh, one of the things I admire about this place is, is the very different perspective on it. So we are typically research question driven. Uh, and try to understand what's the role of X on this process, what's the role of, say, the macrophage in tissue remodeling. Uh, that being said, I mean, I think we are one of our driving applications in pancreatic islet transplantation. So can we enable uh, islet transplantation to be safer and more effective, need fewer islets, have it be a more effective treatment for diabetics? So that's probably the principal application. Some of the other applications are related to using uh, liver cells for drug screening or to make a liver, an artificial liver construct that we can use uh, to treat uh, somebody who had liver failure. And we also have some, a little bit of work with a kidney failure model that's looking promising. Um, but again, those are, more, those are more examples of scenarios where we can actually answer uh, sort of science questions sure. rather than working towards a clinically useful product. So one of your research areas is in cell transplantation and using cells as delivery devices for therapeutic agents. Can you discuss some of the applications that you're working on using these micro-encapsulation of cells? So again, this one I just mentioned is using pancreatic islets. So here the idea is to take pancreatic islets uh, and to deliver them to a diabetic. Uh, in our case, we're thinking about a subcutaneous site, relatively easy to get to site to deliver islets and so therefore change the treatment of diabetes from a three injection per day to a one injection per six months kind of therapy. So that would be one cell delivery application that we're thinking about. The other one uh, is a, a kidney failure one with colleagues who are uh, 
nephrologists are interested in delivering uh, a modified bone marrow cell and they find that when they deliver the bone marrow cell, just inject it, these cells don't uh, go to the kidney, but they produce uh, factors that help the, uh, repair the kidney. So these so delivering these reparative factors from mesenchymal stromal cells is another cell delivery vehicle that's, that's interesting. Our purpose of that story is that if we can get vascularization around the delivery site, then we can benefit uh, hmm. the delivery of those factors. And do you see this microencapsulation of, of cells that can release therapeutic agents totally revolutionizing the pharmaceutical industry in terms of how they look no, to, I, I'd be to deliver drugs? That, or? But I think there are a number of scenarios where cell delivery is the ideal vehicle. Even the sorry, the eyelid story is a, is a good example. Uh, actually, I began before working on eyelids to work on insulin delivery pumps. So this, this was again in the 70s. Uh, and we realized as we were developing these pumps that what we did not have in that pump system was a glucose sensor. There was a great deal of interest in the medical device industry to develop sensors, uh, but uh, they just still don't really work that well. But we realized when we started working with pancreatic outlets that that was actually the perfect glucose sensor. So they would sense glucose, produce the amount of insulin that's required, and there wasn't any need for storing molecules or preparing them. We had to prepare the cell and have the cell function but that, you know, certainly when we started, we thought it was an easy problem. It's obviously harder than that. But I think that's an example where, in some indications, the cells could do a better job yeah. than the pure molecule. Uh, along those lines, let's say <clears throat> you had a device that could sense a raise in blood pressure, and you were able to dispense blood pressure medication for a patient. Um, I mean, do you see that Yeah, so I think there are a number of scenarios where such... Uh, self-regulating systems could be beneficial, but again, it's a number of scenarios. I think they're probably still a lot easier to take a pill yeah. one, you know, once a day. And I don't think we're ever the, any idea that any cell therapy is going to replace that. But you know, cell therapy versus protein therapy, maybe cell therapy versus gene therapy. Again, there are probably some scenarios where the cell would be beneficial. But again, you know, it, it's, since we can't do cell therapy for cell processes yet, you know, it's still, uh, it's a little hard to talk about some of these things. Yeah. So uh, I'd like to go back to your ultimate goal, which is to provide patients with lab-grown organs. Um, if you had a crystal ball, um, when do you envision this goal to be realized for major organs such as heart and liver? I put my neck on the line some time ago <laughs> and said, you know, we could have uh, lab-grown hearts in 10 years. Uh, I think that was about 15 years ago. No, we don't have lab-grown hearts now. Although what's interesting, in that 10 or 15 years, the field of sort of developing tissues for hearts has grown from zero to being some substantive output. And I like to think that some of that was these kinds of ideas that we were thinking about 10, 15 years ago. Again, I, I would, again, if I ask this question again now, which you just did, again, I think 10 years is, again, the kind of time frame one needs for having, having some of these lab-grown 
tissues. Now, is this one lab-grown tissue, one cubic centimeter in size? Now, I don't know that we specified the target that clearly yet as to what we're going to get in 10 years. I think in 10 years, getting one tissue by bioprinting is probably real. Getting 100,000 by bioprinting is not going to happen in 10 years. So I think there's still lots, lots of work there to be done. Even having that one lab-grown printed organ, uh, having it remodel in the way we want it to remodel so it functions, uh, that might take more than 10 years. Yeah. And, and along those lines, are there specific areas that we should be focused on to accelerate this goal? Two critical problems, uh, again, are the vascularization problem and the immunology problem. And we will need to understand a lot more about both of those processes. Certainly vascularization, there are people in Wake Forest, people elsewhere, who are focused in on that and zeroing in on that problem. And that problem looks like it is resolvable uh, in some form or another. The immunology part of things is the other major problem, and unfortunately I think there are probably there are nowhere near enough people dealing with that part of the issue. There's a lot of people who are circumventing and avoiding it, but I don't think there's enough on that side of things to understand hmm. those consequences yet. So to kind of switch subjects, for young scientists, do you have any advice in terms of choosing a research path or seeking out mentors? I think, I think you need to do things that you find interesting and exciting. Uh, I don't think it really matters where you go or what you do. Uh, so they're, they're all interesting. Find a mentor who you're compatible with and who you enjoy, who treats you with respect. Find an environment that is to your liking. But the most important thing you should do is to fail. And fail often. And then pick yourself up and then fail again. So that would be my advice. Okay. And then a, a follow-up question <laughs> to that. Do, did you have any mentors throughout your career that had a major impact on you? Uh, sure. I mean, I think at, at every stage, between from my PhD mentor, who uh, you know guided me in my PhD, but really learned early on that the best thing to do with me was to get out of my way uh, and just let me do my stuff, to you know professors who were more senior than I was and who guided me. I have uh, one story that I can tell that uh, when I was hired as a professor in Toronto in 1974, um, I was actually going to work on polymers, having nothing to do with biomedical work, although I had done biomedical work in my PhD, on the premise that, well, there's no jobs for in biomedical engineering, no medical device industry to speak of. And so it would be unfair to teach students in that area. And I, my department chair at the time said I was wrong and that I should not worry about the jobs and I should do the biomedical work because it was interesting and exciting. That was why they hired me. Uh, and I shouldn't worry about the job part of it. And so I took his advice and progressively expanded that part of it and reduced the straight boring polymer work that I had been doing 
and, and I've never looked back and the field seemed to catch up with me. So that was an important piece of advice for me. And I should also indicate that my mentors really became my colleagues around North America. I happened to have very good classmates. Uh, Bob Langer and Nick Peppers were classmates of mine, and so we would always talk regularly, so we would always share ideas at meetings, and so uh, that became a, a regular event. Okay. Well, for our non-scientific audience, what would you like them to take away from this podcast about regenerative medicine? Okay, so my, my quick takeaway is that regenerative medicine has lots of promise. Uh, it's a very exciting area. It's very easy to talk about it and get people to be interested in it. Uh, it is, however, very hard and very slow, and we're going to fail more often than we're going to be successful, and one needs to be patient. Thank you very much. That's all for this episode. Be sure to listen next time for the latest in regenerative medicine. This podcast is a production of Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, part of Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. For more information, visit our website at www.wfirm.org or follow us on Facebook or Twitter at WFIRM News.